It is the morning show. I'm Kate Archer Kent. A program through the Jewish Agency for Israel brings 18 year olds from Israel to Milwaukee for a volunteer year of service. We meet the two students hosted by the Milwaukee Jewish Federation and hear their concerns about the Israeli Hamas war. Call in with a question, share comments along the way, 800-642-1234, email ideas at WPR.org. Eitan is from Kafar Tavo, a village in the Galilee region of northern Israel, and we're identifying the teens by their first names for safety concerns. Eitan, welcome to the Ideas Network. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Tom is from Moshevat Kinaret, a small community on the southwest of the Sea of Galilee. Tom, welcome. Hello. Good morning. Thank you. Good morning. Tom, let's start with you. You both arrived in Milwaukee in August. How are you spending your days in Wisconsin? Um, Actually, we're here for your volunteer, as you said. So we are working in a lot of... um, places that some of them like most of them has to do something with the jewish federation milwaukee jewish federation um other than that we are exploring milwaukee you know going to concerts um going to the lake you know trying to have a little bit from everything (laughs) what Um, is what has surprised you about milwaukee um actually uh like a few days ago it was our first day in the snow because uh, in Israel, where we live, uh, we don't have snow. So it was mm-hmm. a really, really special day. Um, and I'm looking forward to more snow. I guess <laughs> really what? More is coming. <laughs> yes. <laughs> waiting for that. Oh, dear. That's great. Uh, Eitan, what volunteering are you doing? Um, so I'm working in the same places as Tom. Um, as Tom said, working um, in uh, the Jewish community. So... Uh, it's a variety of jobs. We're working in all ages. Um, our like goal mainly is to bring our Israeli um, thoughts and like our Israeli um, feelings um, for the good and for the bad um, throughout the year, and and actually to get people connected to uh, the Israeli culture and the Israeli people. How are you chosen for this program? What is the selection process like through the um, Jewish Agency of Israel? So it starts uh, in 11th grade, at the end of 11th grade. Um, it's a process of a year and a half. You need to do a lot of tests. You need to check your personality, um, your work ethic, and all uh, other kind of stuff. Um, after that, you have... Um, you have like you have the regional test like everybody um get selects get selected to each place we got uh selected to interviews in Milwaukee um it's mainly because our region is partnering with uh Milwaukee as a region mm. um and we got accepted um so <laughs> the percentage is 6000 kids every year apply and 200 get accepted throughout the world Oh, my goodness. And when you were a child, your family hosted delegations from Milwaukee. What impression did that have on you? Oh, it's a large impression. Um, throughout a lot of uh, places, I, I got to know a lot of um, great Milwaukee people and the Milwaukee community even before I came here. 
And I'm a Bucks fan, so, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Who's your favorite player? <laughs> Giannis, come oh, on. <laughs> I, I didn't need to ask, did I? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm going to reintroduce you here, talking with Eitan and Tom, um, Israeli 18-year-olds in an exchange program in Milwaukee with the Milwaukee Jewish Federation. And you can join in with your questions and comments at 800-642-1234. Email ideas at WPR.org. Um, Tom, you both... Uh, come from smaller communities near the Sea of Galilee in in northeastern Israel, and you were unacquainted with one another prior to becoming Israeli emissaries in this program. How have you come to know and support one another? Um, So, you know, we actually met each other during the program, like doing the tests that we had to do um, before we got accepted. Um, And after the interview, when we just realized that we got accepted, we were like, okay, we are only two shinshins here in Milwaukee. We should be friends. We should hang out. We should get to know each other. Um, you know, if you're friends with one another, this year would be way better. And you can have, like, so much fun together, um, even if you're working. Um, so we, 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 like, talk to each other. Our family got to know each other. Um, and, yeah, this would bring us really close. Oh, that's wonderful to have a support system yeah. like that. Um, Tom, how are your family and friends being affected by the attack on Israelis by Hamas militants and the ongoing fighting in the Gaza Strip? Um, actually, because my family, like my close family, my parents and my siblings, we all live in the north. Um, so they're fine for now. Um, but all of my uncles and my cousin called back to reserve, um, like, you know, um, actually, also, you know, because we're 18 and when you get to 18 in Israel, after you got, you graduate, um, you all go to the military service. Mm-hmm. Um, so all of my friends are there. Some of them in Gaza, some of them in other places. Um, I actually lost one of my friends. I'm sorry. Uh, a week ago. Um, and, uh, yeah, you know, they're all trying to stay as, as safe as possible, you know, um, but it's something that you can't really, you don't, you don't know when you're going to face it. Hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Eitan, how do you feel about hearing this news and being so far away from family and friends at this time? <laughs> it's a tough question. I mean, you have so many mixed emotions because, um, you know, you need to keep working, um, in one side and the other side it's hard you know um um i f- i feel like um like I, I, we work with a lot of variety of kids uh for example and when you work with kids sometimes you, you they are innocent they don't know the situation so you need to you know smile the way through and it's hard sometimes because uh you feel like kind of empty inside sometimes mm-hmm. and you know being so far away from the whole situation and you know in wisconsin the like the life is just keep going it's it's hard sometimes do the children you interact with now do have they asked you any questions about the war of course i mean i don't think you like you hear the word israel and you hear the the war so everybody's asking questions all the time. 
um, I want to provide as, as many answers as I can, you know, because um, for me, it's important to people to to know. And even like after that, if it's like older kids to um, search for themselves and get information, it's I, I did my job, in my opinion, if I did it, if I made them search it. You attended school in Israel with diverse student populations. Your classmates were Jewish, Muslim, Christian, from other faiths and and cultural backgrounds. With that said, how do you view this conflict between Israel and Palestinians? Uh, Well, I mean, I don't know. I just, I don't have any view. I'm just you know, worrying for my family and friends and for the whole situation. It's hard. I mean, Mm -hmm. have your family members been called up for military reserves? Um, yeah, was in, you need to be young enough. I mean, you need to be in age to get recruited, but yeah, everybody who was in the age got recruited. Mm. Eitan and Tom, they're students from northern Israel, part of an annual Young Emissary program through the Milwaukee Jewish Federation. And you can be part of this discussion. Call in with a question. You can share your thoughts at 800-642-1234. I'm Kate Archer-Kent. You're listening to The Morning Show on the Ideas Network. It is The Morning Show. I'm Kate Archer-Kent. A pair of teens from northern Israel stay with Milwaukee host families during a year of service known as Shinchinum in Hebrew. We check in with Tom and Eitan amid the Israel-Hamas war and discuss their volunteer activities in Wisconsin through this program in cooperation with the Jewish Agency for Israel. Call in with a question. You can share your views at 800-642-1234. Email ideas at wpr.org. Tom, when you talk about your uncles and cousins being called up to the military reserves, do they leave their work and schooling behind? How does that work? Um, Yes, actually you stop what you're doing and you just have to call, you have to go back, you know. Um, Actually, until like a week ago, I would say, uh, there were no schools in Israel. Like, they all stopped. Like, my siblings did not went to school every morning. Like, no one went to school for like a really long time. Um, But yeah, if you call back for reserve, you have to stop what you're doing and go back. How much communication is there with your family members who are called back into the military reserves? Do you know where they are? Do you know what they're doing? Um, sometimes, uh, I'll tell you what, um, sometimes, you know, they don't have their phones most of the time, um, or service or like way to talk. Um, but you know, I, I always try to like leave messages and like things that will make them stronger, um, sometimes, um, I know where they are. Sometimes I have no idea. It really depends on like where, like what's going on, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
Eitan, um, since the Hamas attack and and Israel's airstrikes on Gaza, there have been hundreds of protests and counter-protests that have been taking place on um, college campuses here in America. And these are college students around your age. How could students discuss this conflict productively? I mean, um, in my opinion, like what I, I believe in is talking with um, listening to other people and other opinions is the most important part. Um, for example, I like I love I, li- I like to believe that I um, am open-minded, and if somebody will give me something factual, I can work with. I will agree with them. Can you give an example of when you have changed your mind recently over something someone told you or um, during a deeper discussion? Um, I don't have something in mind right now. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But yeah, um, just respect when you talk to other persons, even if they have under opinion is the most important part. And yeah, I learned diplomacy in high school, so... I learned the value of talking and listening to other people with other opinions. That's so interesting that you were taught diplomacy in high school. You had is that you had an emphasis in in diplomacy? So in Israel in high school everybody is choo- choosing a major to focus on in their high school um work. Okay. So that was mine. Yes. Tom, what was your emphasis and major in high school, may I ask? Yeah, of course. Um, I learned biotechnology in mm. high school. Yeah. Um, the thing is that instead of having major in college, like which we also have, but we are doing the majors in high school. Um, so there's a lot of options, and I just chose what I liked. <laughs> Does this year of service give you more clarity on on your future plans on your goals in life um actually yes i'm thinking about it a lot um also because i have a lot of um friends in college right now um so they're all like kind of know where they're going and i'm still thinking mm-hmm. um but i'm sure that wherever i'll go i'll still do something to do good for Israel, to talk for Israel, um, maybe something, some other programs that the Jewish agency are having, um, but something like that, you know. Yes. How could students on college campuses discuss this conflict productively and ensure that there isn't violence? Yeah. Um, as I done said, I believe in talking. I believe in respect one another. Um, I think that if people are sitting in a circle with others and just start talking, even if they don't know each other, I don't see why this needs to go to violence. Like people need to learn how to talk, how to speak to each other, how to respect, you know, first off boundaries and to respect other opinions, which is really important. We're talking with, which, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Uh, that's good. I can tell you that it's something that we I said I can say at my high school, we we learned that in school, how we have a lot of programs of like how, you know, Israel is a very diverse country, we are super different from one another, um, and they really teach teach us how to talk, how to accept one another, how to accept like other cultures, other opinions, um, so that's something that really needs to work on.
um, in your months here in Wisconsin, have you seen that type of respect of what you have learned, um, you know, from your upbringing in, in Israel? What is yes, American culture like? Sure. Yeah. Um, for sure. Like people love to hear a lot of people that I talk to um, really want to hear us talking. And, you know, even if we're not agree with one another, the thing is like um, respect each other and know how to listen to one another without like, I don't see a reason why it needs to go to violent. Mm. Talking yeah. with Tom and Eitan um, in this Israeli-Milwaukee exchange program, Shin Shin, they're the two Israeli emissaries this year. You can join in with your questions and comments at 800-642-1234. Email ideas at wpr.org. Eitan, what from your year in Milwaukee, I know it's still young this year, but what do you expect to take home to Israel? So, um, the, I mean, some of the most important things for me to take from this experience is, of course, all, um, the, the, like the experience and the things I will see this year. And I think the people I'll meet, um, and the community that got to know, um, it's something very important to me and I would like to make it stronger even, um, of course, um, everybody that um, that I talked with is like something I want to keep, and you know, I just uh, save it with me and mm-hmm. take take all the experience I had and the American thing that that like the American things that I've learned um, with me to Israel back. Um, what? Did you did you have go through training and preparation um, before the Jewish Agency for Israel brought you here? Did you have adequate training for being a Shinshin? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, of course. We had um, two um, trainings throughout the year uh, for I, I think one was one week and the other one was five days. Um, that we just learned um, what do we do in extreme situations, um, if we had a problem in the class. Um, of course, no one prepared us for the situation is going right now, but, I mean, how can you predict that kind of stuff? Mm-hmm. Um, do you find I mean, that, do you do you have more clarity on, on your future goals in life through this program, do you think? Of course, of course, Um I think in my future, I would love to come back to Milwaukee as well um, and work in the Jewish agency even. I mean, it opened up, it opened so many ways um, to, so many paths for me in the future and I'm glad for it. I'm very um, excited, Mm -hmm. I guess. Someone will take you to a Bucks game, right? (laughs) (laughs) Tom, what are your hopes for a lasting peace between Israelis and Palestinians? What are my hopes? Mm-hmm. Um, my hopes, you know, you know the Israeli um, anthem mm-hmm. called Hatikva is the hope. Um, I always have the hope that people will be able to, as I said, respect one another learn how to talk to each other. Um, we, we're, we're living only once in this world, you know, 
our time is you don't know when it's going to end and i don't want my kids to live in a fear um i don't want to live in a fear in my country um i'm sure that there's a lot more people who don't want to do that mm. um i just hope that people will be able to talk to each other tom and yeah. etan thank you for joining us thank you so much no for having us yes Tom and Eitan, they're 18-year-olds from northern Israel, spending a year in Milwaukee through an exchange program between the Milwaukee Jewish Federation and the Jewish Agency for Israel. I'm Kay Darcher-Kent. You're listening to The Morning Show on the Ideas Network. It is The Morning Show. I'm Kate Archer-Kent. We examine policies about utility transmission lines and the view of the advocacy group Americans for Prosperity Wisconsin on rising customer rates. First, about 700 year-round residents live on the isolated Washington Island, and for years they've suffered through slow and spotty internet speeds with Starlink or DSL. But as Evan Casey reports, that may not be the case for much longer. Courtney and Eric DeJardin live on Washington Island, which sits off the northern tip of Dora County. They own the busy Man's Mercantile General Store. Its walls are lined with souvenirs as customers fill the aisles. But living on an island doesn't come without its challenges. One of them, slow and spotty internet service. When you got a business like this where you have, you know, mass customers walking in your door at from open till close, and if you don't have any internet service, you don't have any money coming in. That's the sound of construction workers unspooling several hundred feet of fiber optic cable. They're at work deep in the woods, about five miles from Man's Mercantile. It's a cool September day, and workers wearing hard hats are high up on a utility pole with the cable. When it's installed, they'll go from having slow and unreliable internet to lightning fast service. The work is part of a new $7 million fiber optic network that's running across the islands. The goal is to bring the faster service to any home and business that wants it. Robert Cornell is a manager of the Washington Island Electric Co-op and the driving force behind the project. He likes to drive across the 35 square mile islands and count the homes with the service. It's kind of fun because this is where we started and I can go down the road and I can say, he has it, he has it, they have it, they have it, they have it. We've got them connected and I, and everybody on this road is connected. Nearly 250 locations on the islands now have the service. That includes Man's Mercantile. The project is partly funded by the co-op, but around half of it is being paid for through grants, including $2.5 million from the Wisconsin Public Service Commission. The state has been working to expand broadband access, especially in rural areas, for over a decade. But almost a quarter of a million homes and businesses still don't have access to internet that can support basic video streaming. Federal grants support broadband expansion through the Broadband Equity Access and Deployment Program. It goes by the acronym BEAD. Wisconsin got $1 billion from that program. Public Service Commission Chair Rebecca Vock says it'll take more than just the federal money to reach all Wisconsinites with connections fast enough to support video calls and gaming. We know it's going to take more 
than the bead allocation to get everybody to 100 by 20 um, by 2030. But we are we're confident that we're going to make incredible progress by by 2030. Earlier this year, state lawmakers rejected a proposal from Governor Tony Evers to expand broadband access. Vox believes that'll slow the process down. On Washington Island, Michael Gillespie doesn't have a new service at his home yet, but he does have it at his office. He says it helps with downloading and sending large PDF documents needed for his job as a plumber. We're usually kind of the last for new technologies. Um, they say plumbing came here 20 years after it came to the mainland in the you know early part of the century, but we're leaders in this, so that's pretty exciting that um, little Washington Island can have fiber optic internet. It could be several more years until everyone has access across the state. And as time goes on, old infrastructure may not be suitable to bring high speeds to everyone as technology continues to grow and evolve. But for Gillespie and his wife Danny, the new infrastructure can't come to their home fast enough. Robert Cornell often jokes with Danny about the pace of the project. Cannot wait till the high speed to go to my house. It's coming. It's I keep coming. asking when is my house. It, it, we move it out a week every time you ask. <laughs> the project is expected to be completed by the end of 2025. Evan Casey, Wisconsin Public Radio. It is The Morning Show. I'm Kate Archer-Kent. We discuss energy costs for Wisconsinites and proposals that could impact competitiveness and transparency in the construction of utility transmission lines. Call in with a question. You can share your comments, 800-642-1234. Email ideas at WPR.org. Megan Novak is State Director of Americans for Prosperity Wisconsin. That's a libertarian conservative political advocacy group. Megan, welcome to the Ideas Network. Good morning, Kate. Thanks so much for having me on. Good morning. So a bill in the state capitol that recently had a public hearing would limit which companies can bid for utility projects here in Wisconsin. How would a right of first refusal affect utility competition in our state? That's a great question. So what we're looking at right now, and I don't want to get too into the weeds, but what we're looking at is about $15 billion worth of projects for new transmission lines coming to Wisconsin over the next couple of years. That's a lot of money that will that ratepayers will be responsible for paying for these projects. And what we're talking about at the end of the day is should companies have to competitively bid to have the best possible cost? for Wisconsin consumers, or should we just hand those projects over to two companies um, and with a fingers crossed uh, handshake that maybe they'll try their best? And I strongly believe Americans for Prosperity strongly believes that competition at the end of the day is what's best for consumers. And those competitive bids are what will drive down costs and let all of us from Wisconsin families to small business owners to our big companies save a little bit on those monthly electricity bills that we're seeing. Can you give us just a bit of a working knowledge? What are right of first refusal laws in, in the energy transmission and, and the build out that you're going to see in the next couple years with these projects? 
Of course. So right now, the regional entity that oversees Wisconsin and a number of other states, it's called MISO, um, is in total doing $100 billion of these massive transmission line projects. So lines that are similar to the Cardinal Hickory Creek line down in southwest Wisconsin. Um, And back in 2011, the federal um, energy regulators used to have a right of first refusal, which simply meant that the incumbent company for these transmission lines could get the initial project. And if they said, yes, I want it, then there was no competitive bids required. They automatically got the project without any additional transparency or oversight in a bidding process. Um, They rescinded that in 2011 and said, okay, states, you make up your own decision. And since then, we've seen a couple states around the country uh, pass these laws to provide this protectionist, essentially crony capitalism monopoly to their incumbent utility companies. Uh, Wisconsin tried to do the same last session. It was defeated. Americans for Prosperity was very engaged in that. And now we're seeing um, the same effort being pushed by utility companies again, because like I said, there's this massive pot of money of projects coming to the state that they don't want to have to competitively bid for. They just want the projects so that they um, are able to get them without the competitive bid and able to make that profit on their projects. When you look around the country, other states like Iowa and Texas, Minnesota have introduced or enacted laws limiting utility bids. How are right of first refusal laws affecting utility prices in other states? Well, I just want to quick clarify that um, in Iowa, their state Supreme Court struck down their law for unconstitutional log rolling and then said in their opinion that this legislation is quintessential crony capitalism. Um, So Iowa's law is no longer um, valid. Um, And then Texas is actually on hold too. They did a federal court of appeals challenge and the court of appeals that covers Texas, which is the Fifth Circuit, also struck down um, their law. And so now we're waiting to see if the U.S. Supreme Court takes up this issue. So Um, I guess of those, the three that you mentioned, Minnesota is the only state that still has an active right of first refusal law. And really from when um, Minnesota passed theirs in 2012, um, in which I think it's a little ironic that in 2012, when they passed their law, one of the big companies that is pushing Rofer in Wisconsin was dead opposed to Rofer in Minnesota at the time, saying in their testimony that it would increase costs for electricity users in Minnesota. And now all of a sudden they're saying it'll save costs for Wisconsin electricity users, which I guess who, which are we trusting 2012 or 2023 comments on that one? Um, But to get back to your initial question, we're really just starting to see these big projects come down the pike of where there could be competitive bidding or not. Like I said, this is a new tranche of projects coming through. Um, So we're really just seeing the initial results of the states that have competitive bidding still and the states that have passed Rofer. So I don't believe Minnesota has gotten any of the projects from the first tranche, Um, but we have seen two competitive bids come through for one through um, an Iowa-Missouri transmission line project and another one from uh, the Indiana-Michigan project, both of which saw substantial cost savings for consumers through the competitive bidding process. Um, Let's look at that pushback for a moment because proponents of this bill say the legislation would ensure that Wisconsin controls our state's energy future rather than out-of-state investors. What is your response to that argument? Um, So I think 
Right. When you look at, first of all, we're talking about Wisconsin families and businesses that are going to be paying for these costs. And I firmly believe that if the best way to protect Wisconsinites is to help them lower their monthly electricity bills. Energy poverty is a growing problem in Wisconsin and in across America. And if we can save millions to hundreds of millions of dollars on those monthly electricity bills for Wisconsin residents and Wisconsin families, we should absolutely be doing that. And the argument that this is somehow handing over control to out-of-state hedge funds, I think is really a red herring because almost every utility company, um, with the exception of co-ops in Wisconsin, has probably some ownership from out-of-state hedge funds Mm. too, um, specifically transmission line companies who are owned by utilities who are then owned by out-of-state hedge fund managers. So it's really a complete red herring of an argument. Megan Novak is State Director of Americans for Prosperity Wisconsin as we discuss policies that could affect future energy transmission and ratepayers. Call in with a question. You can share your views along the way at 800-642-1234. I'm Kate Archer-Kent. You're listening to The Morning Show on the Ideas Network. It is The Morning Show. I'm Kate Archer-Kent. We get perspective from the free market advocacy group Americans for Prosperity on a package of bills that would affect Wisconsin ratepayers and the future of transmission line construction in our state. Call in with a question. You can share your thoughts at 800-642-1234. Email ideas at WPR.org. Megan Novak is with us, State Director of Americans for Prosperity. Megan, Wisconsin utility companies are requesting millions of dollars in rate hikes over the next year, and you oppose these requests. Can you explain why? You know, I I don't think it's fair to say we completely oppose the the request outright. But what we're concerned about is another round of rate hikes on top of what we've seen over the last couple of years of double digit percentage increases on Wisconsin families. Um, And now they're most... Almost every single one of the rate case exception of one is looking for another increase. And we know inflation is impacting families all across the state. And we just have concerns of this ongoing energy poverty issue that so many of our fellow residents are facing. Um, We did a tour this summer um, called Prosperity is Possible, where we went around and talked to residents and citizens at grocery stores and gas stations from every corner of the state, from Milwaukee up to Minong in far northwest Wisconsin. And the stories that we heard of people who are just really struggling in our current economy to make ends meet were heartbreaking. And we provided some inflation relief through different um, gift cards for the grocery store, the gas station. Um, And I had one woman who told me that she was so thankful that this month she didn't have to choose between between buying diapers and buying groceries because we were able to help her out with a gift card. And at the end of the day, maybe she didn't bring up her monthly electricity bill, but we know that with another round of rate increases, that decision is going to get harder and harder for her family in the current economy. So, you know, um, 
What is the process for companies to increase their rates? Uh, and what is the role of the Public Service Commission in this moment to, appro- to approve these um, rate increases? Yep. So the uh, utility companies have to go through a lengthy regulatory bureaucratic process to get a rate increase where they have to put together essentially an argument. Um, It's a mini court case is how I think we can best compare it of their support for why they need that rate increase. Our Public Service Commission is, of course, the regulators of this industry. And so they look, they create an entire case file. They seek input from energy users from the largest energy users in our state to everyday residents and consumers like you and I um, to try and get information and public comment to see if the rate case makes sense and what the final number should be. And then usually this time of year, so last week we just saw um, the PSC approve the rate increase for MG&E. So Madison for Gas Madison and Electric. Gas and Electric. Mm-hmm. Yep. So Madison area residents just will see that rate increase go into effect in January. And they just approved um, a couple uh, one and a half percent this year and almost six percent next year for that rate increase. Um, And we'll see the PSC approve these rate increases probably every week through the rest of November going into Thanksgiving um, for the um, consumers outside of the state. Using Madison Gas and Electric as um, kind of a case study here on Friday, as you mentioned, the Public Service Commission um, um, voted and they also voted to reduce slightly the profit rate that is a, that MG&E is allowed to earn. What should profit margins be for utilities? Okay, that's a great question. And as I'm not a regulator, so I can't, I can't pick a number out of thin air, but I think if we go back to the competitive bidding issue we were talking about before the break, um, some of the competitive bids we were willing, other companies were willing to take a percentage, almost in a complete percentage point off of their profit, which is the return on equity through their competitive bid. Um, so I don't think there's something that I can say of, you know, mm-hmm. 7% is, is what's fair, but right now, at least on the transmission line side of things, those companies are guaranteed 10.52% return on equity. Um, but through competitive bidding, we're seeing companies willing to go down to 9.8%, um, which is huge when we're talking about a you know a $200 million project. That's a lot of savings. And so I think that's where we can go back to the importance of the competitive free market forces onto this regulated industry where we can make a difference in what's ultimately paid by ratepayers. With that said, in general, do you think are earning caps necessary for utilities? You know, I think with the regulations that we have um, in the state statutes that we have, it does make sense of that there should be some sort of regulatory um, oversight into the process and I, what that looks like exactly. I think right now there, the PSC has that control and they should maintain control over that, those rate increases and what the, maybe what that profit margin would be. I'd like to, you know, if there's someone who's willing to say, hey, let's take a look at a proposal, I think that's something we would definitely review. I don't know if we would necessarily support or oppose something like that without seeing, you know, specific statutory language to massively Mm -hmm. change how our utilities are regulated right now, though. We're talking about Wisconsin Utilities with Megan Novak, State Director of Americans for Prosperity Wisconsin. That's a libertarian uh, political advocacy group. You can join in with your questions and comments at 800-642-1234. 
Megan, we heard from Kent in Reedstown and is asking about grid enhancement technology, and this would make the grid more efficient, Kent says. And do you think advancing technology could reduce energy prices for ratepayers? You know, that sounds like an absolute free market um, opportunity with the development of new technology. Generally, we see cost decreases for goods in almost every sector. And so I think absolutely we should be, again, utilizing free market forces on this highly regulated monopoly industry to try and drive down costs wherever we can while still maintaining reliability and safety standards for all of us in Wisconsin who rely on readily available energy. When you say highly regulated monopoly industry, I mean, that could cause people to be um, really concerned about those words. Um, And I want to dig deeper into this package of bills that would really step up transparency and increase reporting to the Public Service Commission and companies would be required to report plans for future projects or, or, you know, closing power plants. What do you think better transparency, more communication would um, help the system as a whole? Absolutely. This package of bills, um, the utility sunshine package, that that is the ultimate goal is to provide a little bit more transparency and public input into this process that maybe flies under the radar, but ultimately impacts every single Wisconsinite. And I think you know, one of the easiest ones to explain is right now when a utility comes to, with, to the PSC with a rate increase request, um, a, a notice goes out to the bill payers in their monthly bill. And so let's say that we'll call it Megan's Electric Company requests a 5% increase going into next year. And that notice goes out to all of my customers. And then I decide a month later that after looking at my numbers and everything, I decide actually that should be a 12% increase. There is no requirement in state law right now that customers are then re-notified of that new, much larger, much more impactful rate hike. And so one of the bills in this package simply says if it's a 1% more rate hike from the initial initial proposal that's notified to consumers, they absolutely need to be made aware of that um, as it goes through the rate case process. Do you think there is a lack of communication or accountability now between utilities and state regulators? I just think there could be more. I think more oversight and transparency for the public is always a good thing. And that's what this package of bills ultimately aims to do is to provide that more opportunities for Wisconsinites to be aware of what's going on with their utility bills. Megan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Megan Novak is State Director of Americans for Prosperity Wisconsin. That's a libertarian conservative political advocacy group. You can visit our program page to stream or download more programs from the morning show. Visit WPR.org slash mornings. I'm Kate Archer-Kent. You're listening to The Morning Show here on the Ideas Network.